Chapter Fifteen, Part One, of the History of Standard Oil, Volume Two, by Ida Tarbell, recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Fifteen: A Modern War for Independence. John D. Rockefeller's one irreconcilable enemy in the oil business has always been the oil producer. There is no doubt that Mr. Rockefeller has sincerely deplored this, and well he might, for he learned in his first great raid on the industry in 1872 that the producers aroused and united made a powerful and dangerous foe. No doubt, if it had been practical, Mr. Rockefeller would have begun at the start to take over oil production as he did oil refineries and pipelines, and thus would have gotten his enemy out of the way. But during the first fifteen years of his work it was not practical. The oil fields were too vast and undefined. It not being practical to own the oil fields, and yet essential that those who did own them, and of whose oil he aspired to be the only buyer, should be kept sufficiently satisfied not to interfere with his domination, or to attempt to handle the oil for themselves. Mr. Rockefeller, when he had the chance, sought to persuade the producers to do what he would have done had he owned the oil fields, that was, to keep the supply of crude oil short. The dear people, he said once when asked by an investigating committee if his monopoly of oil refining and oil transportation had not prevented the producer from getting his full share of the profits. The dear people, he said, if they had produced less oil than they wanted, would have got their full price. No combination in the world could have prevented that if they had produced less oil than the world required. It is quite possible that if Mr. Rockefeller had been able to convert the majority of the producing body to this theory, and the supply of crude oil had been kept scarce and prices consequently high, the oil producers would have forgotten their resentment at his early raids and would have relapsed into indifference toward his control. Material prosperity is usually benumbing in its effects. There always has been a factor in the great game playing in the oil regions, however, which not even Mr. Rockefeller could match. Nature had been in the oil game, and she has taken pains to prevent the only situation which would have enabled Mr. Rockefeller to reconcile the oil producers. Again and again, when it seemed as if the limits of oil production were set, and when Mr. Rockefeller and his colleagues must have believed that they would soon have the industry sufficiently well in hand to pay the producers a satisfactory price for crude oil, their calculations have been upset by the discovery of a great deposit of oil which flooded the market and put down the prices. This happened so often between Mr. Rockefeller's first public appearance in the business and the time when he completed his control of transportation refineries and markets that the yearly production of crude oil had risen from five and a half million barrels to thirty million barrels, and instead of a half million barrels above ground in stocks, there were in 1883 over thirty-five million barrels, in 1884 nearly thirty-seven million, and in 1885 thirty-three and a half million. The low price for crude which these vast stocks caused, the high charges for gathering, transporting, and storing, all services out of which the Standard was making big profits, the fact that the profit on refined oil steadily increased in these years, the result of the overthrow of independent refiners and pipelines, while the profit on crude steadily diminished, were facts which the oil producers brooded over incessantly, 
and the more bitterly because they felt they could do nothing to help themselves. Every enterprise looking to relief which they had undertaken had, for one reason or another, failed. They had no faith that relief was possible. The Standard would never allow any outside interest to get a foothold. It was the bitterness which this conviction caused which was at the bottom of the outburst over the Billingsley Bill described in Chapter 13. The Billingsley Bill was defeated, as it deserved to be, but the work done was by no means lost. For the first time since 1880 the oil regions were aroused to concerted action. The support of the Billingsley Bill had been a spontaneous movement, a passionate, unorganized revolt against the tyranny of the Standard, but it served to bring into action men who for six long years had been saying it was no use to resist, that Mr. Rockefeller's grip was too strong to be loosened. It revived their confidence in united action, and steeled them to a determination to take hold of the industry and force into it again a fair competition in handling oil. On the very night of the defeat of the bill, April 28, 1887, the oil men who had gathered in Harrisburg to support the measure, angry and sore as they were, arranged to call an early meeting in Oil City and organize. The meeting was held. It was large, and it was followed by others. In a very short time, two thousand oilmen were enrolled in a producer's protective association, and thirty-six local assemblies were holding regular meetings throughout the region. There were several important points about the new association, aside from the enthusiasm and determination which animated it. One, it was a secret order. Two, its membership was composed entirely of persons outside of and opposed to the Standard Oil Trust, one of its bylaws reading, no person connected with the Standard Oil Company or any of its allies as partners, stockholders, or employees, and friendly thereto, shall be elected to membership, and members becoming such shall be liable to expulsion. 3. It proposed to defend the industry against the aggregations of monopolistic transporters, refiners, buyers, and sellers by handling its own oil. Hardly had the Producers' Protective Association been organized before Mr. Rockefeller had an opportunity to try his plan for conciliation. An independent movement had been started in the summer of 1887 by certain large producers in favor of a general shutdown, its object, of course, being to decrease the oil stocks. The president of the Producers' Association, Thomas W. Phillips, who at that time was the largest individual producer in the oil country, his production averaging not less than 6,000 barrels a day, was called into consultation with the leaders of the shutdown movement. Mr. Phillips promptly told the gentleman interested that he would not join in such an undertaking unless the Standard went into it. He pointed out that the Standard owned a large proportion of the 30 million barrels of oil above ground. They had bought it at low prices. If the production was shut down, prices would go up, and the Standard would reap largely on the oil they owned. The producers would, as usual, be standing all the loss. The upshot of the Council was that the Producers' Protective Association took hold of the shutdown movements, its representatives seeking an interview with the Standard officials as to their willingness to share in the cost of reducing the production. Here was a chance for Mr. Rockefeller to apply his theory of handling the oil producers, conciliate them when possible, encourage them in limiting their production. 
the oil men's representatives were met halfway, and an interesting and curious plan was worked out. The producers were to agree to limit their production by 17,500 barrels a day. They were to do this by shutting down their producing wells a part or all of the time and by doing no fresh drilling for a year. If they would do this, the Standard agreed to sell the association five million barrels of oil at sixty-two cents and let them carry it at the usual rates as long as they wanted to. Whatever advance in price came from the shut-in movement the producers were to have on their own oil, and it was to be shared by them according to the amount each shut in his production. Mr. Phillips, before agreeing to this arrangement, demanded that provision be made for the working men who would be thrown out of employment by the shutdown, and he proposed that the association set aside for their benefit one million barrels of the oil bought from the Standard, and that the Standard set aside another million. All the profits above sixty-two cents and the carrying charges on the two million barrels were to go to the working men. A memorandum covering the above points of the agreement was drawn up, and it was accepted by the two interests represented. Mr. Rockefeller's reason for signing the contract he gave to the New York State Trust Investigating Committee four months later. Question. What was the inducement for the Standard Oil Trust to enter into such an agreement as that? Answer. The inducement was for the purpose of accomplishing a harmonious feeling as between the interest of the Standard Oil Trust and the producers of petroleum. There was great distress throughout the oil-producing region. As an instance of that distress there was an outcry that our interest was getting a return, that theirs was not in the business, and we did not know, as a matter of fact, that the oil-producing interest was abnormally depressed, and we felt it to be in the interest of the American oil industry that a reasonable price should be had by the producer for the crude material, and we wanted to cooperate to that end. Question. By advancing the price of the crude material, you necessarily advance the price of the refined? Answer. Yes, sir. The shutdown went into effect the 1st of November, 1887. The effect on stocks in the market was immediate. Stocks fell off at the rate of a million barrels a month, and prices rose by January 1888, some twenty cents. But at the end of the year, though oil was higher and stocks considerably less, the benefits of the shutdown had not been conspicuous enough to produce that harmonious feeling Mr. Rockefeller so much desired, not sufficient to distract the minds of the producers from the idea they had in forming their association and that was a cooperative enterprise for taking care of their own oil. Throughout 1888 and 1889, two schemes, known as the Cooperative Oil Company Limited and the United Oil Company Limited, were under consideration. By the end of the latter year it looked as if something could be done with the second, and it was turned over by the executive board of the association to a special committee of which H. L. Taylor of the Union Oil Company one of the largest and oldest producing concerns of the oil regions, was chairman. How Mr. Taylor had succeeded in getting into the Oil Producers Protective Association, it is hard to say, for it was he and his partner, Mr. Satterfield, who in 1883 had tried to throw the Tidewater Pipeline into the hands of the Standard Oil Company, and who, when that unworthy scheme failed, had sold their stock to the Standard, thus giving that company its first holdings in the Tidewater. The independents had forgotten or overlooked this fact, for Taylor was a member 
of the Producers' Protective Association and prominent in its councils. The special committee of which Mr. Taylor was chairman went actively to work. Lawyers were employed to consider the safest form of organization for a company doing an interstate pipeline business and carrying on refineries. Certain German capitalists, owners of tank steamers and interested in foreign marketing agencies, were brought into the scheme. Things were going well when suddenly the committee found the chairman cooling toward the enterprise. Then came the rumor that Mr. Taylor and his partners, Mr. Satterfield and J. L. and J. C. McKinney, had sold the Union Oil Company to the Standard. A meeting of the executive board was at once called, Messrs. Taylor and J. L. McKinney both being present. They acknowledged the truth of the report and were promptly informed their resignations would be accepted. The rumor of the secret desertion of strong members of the Producers' Protective Association while holding positions and trusts soon spread through the oil regions. It was a staggering blow. It took from them one of the largest single interests represented. It deprived them of men of ability on whom they had depended. It introduced a fear of treachery from others. It brought them face to face with a new and serious element in the oil problem, the standard as an oil producer. Up to 1887, the year of the organization of the Producers' Protective Association, Mr. Rockefeller had not taken his great combination into oil production to any extent, and wisely enough from his point of view. It was a business in which there were great risks, and as long as he could control the output by being its only buyer, why should he take it? Now, however, the situation was changing. A number of sure fields had been developed, Bradford, Ohio, West Virginia. Their value was depressed by overproduction. Mr. Rockefeller had money to invest. The producers were threatening to disturb his control by a cooperative scheme. It was certain that he had not yet produced a harmonious feeling. It was not sure he would. If he failed in that, they might one day even shut off his supply of oil, as they had done in 1872 and Mr. Rockefeller, with great foresight, determined to become a producer. In 1887 he went into the Ohio fields. Soon after he began quietly to buy into West Virginia. When he learned in 1890 from Mr. Taylor and his partners that a cooperative company of producers was on foot, he naturally enough concluded that the best way to dismember it was to buy out the largest interest in it. The Union Oil Company saw the advantage of being a member of the Standard Oil Trust, and sold. In this one year, 1890, over 400,000 shares of Standard Oil Trust certificates were issued to oil-producing companies as follows. For stock of Union Oil Company, 18,249 shares. For stock of Forest Oil Company, 17,378 shares. For stock of North Pennsylvania Oil Company, 2,647 shares. For stock of Midland Oil Company, 2,000 shares. Total, 40,274 shares. There was great consternation in producing circles, and if there had not been a number of men in the organization who realized that the life of the independent effort was at stake and who turned all their strength to saving it, the association would undoubtedly have gone to pieces. Chief among these men were Lewis Emery, Jr. and C. P. Collins of Bradford, Pennsylvania, 
J. W. Lee and David Kirk of Pittsburgh, A. D. Wood of Warren, Michael Murphy of Philadelphia, Rufus Scott of Wellsville, J. B. Aiken of Washington, R. J. Strait of Bradford, Roger Sherman, and M. W. Quick of Titusville. They urged an immediate meeting of the General Assembly at which a plan for cooperative action should be adopted and at once put into force. On January 28, 1891, the General Assembly convened at Warren, Pennsylvania. The whole miserable story of the cooperative plan which the executive board had worked out and its destruction by the desertion of the Union Oil Company came out. It was at once evident that, instead of disheartening the assembly, it was going to harden their determination and spur them to action, that they would not leave Warren until they had something to work on. The session lasted three days, and before finally adjourning it had adopted a drastic plan, framed by a committee of nine, of which Mr. Quick was chairman. This plan aimed, so the resolution adopted by the Assembly stated, to cut off the supplies of the producer's oil from the Standard Trust. This was to be accomplished by forming a limited partnership, whose subscribers should all be trusted members of the Producers' Protective Association. Only persons having no affiliation with the Standard Oil Company were members of the Producers' Protective Association, it will be remembered, and which should aim to take care of the crude oil from the wells of the producers who went into the movement, furnish it local transportation, and find a market for it either by building independent refineries or by alliance with those already in existence. From Warren the delegates went home to work for the new scheme. J. W. Lee and J. R. Goldsboro, the secretary of the association, at once made a tour of the oil regions to explain the project and solicit subscriptions. The response was immediate. In a few weeks over one thousand producers had subscribed to the new company, which was at once organized as the Producers' Oil Company Limited, its capital being $600,000. But it is one thing to organize a company, and another to do business. Where were they to begin? Where to set foot? The only thing of which they were sure was the supply of crude oil, and in order to take care of that they began operations by putting up four iron tanks at Coropolis, Pennsylvania, near the rich McDonald oil field. But they must have a market for it, and their first effort was to ship it abroad. At Bayonne, New Jersey, on the border of the territory occupied by the Standard's great plant, stands an independent oil refinery, the Columbia Oil Refinery. The Columbia has terminal privileges, that is, a place on the waterfront from which it can ship oil, an almost impossible privilege to secure around New York Harbor. The Producers Oil Company now obtained from Hugh King, the president of the Columbia, the use of his terminal. They at once had fifty tank cars built and prepared to ship their crude oil, but the market was against them, stocks were increasing, prices dropping. The railroad charged a price so high for running their cars that there was no profit, and the fifty tank cars were never used in that trade. A futile effort to use their crude oil as fuel in Pittsburgh occupied their attention for a time, but it amounted to nothing. It was becoming clearer daily that they must refine their oil. The way opened to this toward the end of their first year. In and around Oil City and Titusville there had grown up since 1881 a number of independent oil refineries. They had come into being as a direct result 
of the compromise made in 1880 between the producers and the Pennsylvania Railroad, a clause of which stipulated that thereafter railroad rates should be open and equal to all shippers. The Pennsylvania seems to have intended at first to live up to this agreement, and it encouraged refiners in both the oil regions and Philadelphia to establish works. At first things had gone very well. There were economies in refining near the point where the oil was produced, and so long as the young independents had a low rate to seaboard for their export oil, they prospered. But in 1884 things began to change. In that year the Standard Pipeline made a pooling arrangement with the Pennsylvania Railroad, by which rates from the oil regions were raised to 52 cents a barrel, an advance of 17 cents a barrel over what they had been getting, and in return for this raise the Standard agreed to give the railroad 26% of all the oil shipped eastward or pay them for what they did not get. This advance put the independents at a great disadvantage. In September 1888 another advance came. Rates on oil in barrels was raised to 76 cents, while rates on oil in tanks were not raised. The explanation was evident. The railroads owned no tank cars but rented them from the Standard Oil Company. It refused to furnish these tank cars to the independent, but forced them to ship in barrels, and now advanced the price on oil in barrels. This second advance was more than the refiners could live under, and they combined and took their case to the Interstate Commerce Commission, a hearing being given them in Titusville in May, 1889. No decision has as yet been rendered, and they in the meantime were having a more and more trying struggle for life and their exasperation against the standard was increasing with each week. When therefore the representatives of the Producers' Oil Company proposed a league with the independent refiners, they were cordially welcomed. "'We have oil tanks at Coropolis,' said the producers. "'Plenty of it, but we have no market. If we build a pipeline from our tanks to Oil City in Titusville and give you pipage at fifteen cents a barrel, five cents less than the standard charges, will you enter into an agreement with us to take our oil for five years the refiners saw at once the possible future in such an arrangement and in a short time they had gone individually into a company to be called the producers and refiners company with a capital of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of which the producers oil company held one hundred and sixty thousand dollars and whose object was the laying of a pipeline from the field in which the producers were interested to the refineries at Oil City in Titusville. The new plan was carried out with the greatest secrecy and promptness. Before the standard men in the region realized what was going on, a right-of-way was secured and the pipe was going down. On January 8, 1893, the first oil was run. Here, then, was the first link in a practical cooperative enterprise. Independent producers and refiners of oil joined by a pipeline of which they were the owners. While this enterprise was being carried out in western Pennsylvania, in the northern part of the state a still more ambitious independent project was underway, nothing less than a double pipeline, one for refined and the other for crude oil from the regions to the sea. This plan had originated with Lewis Emery, Jr., one of the most implacable and intelligent opponents Mr. Rockefeller's pretensions have ever met. Mr. Emery sympathized with the idea that there was no way for the producer to get his share of the profits in the oil business except by handling the product entirely himself. 
in his judgment a pipeline to the seaboard was the first important link in such an attempt and in eighteen ninety one on his own responsibility he set out to see what hopes there were of securing a right-of-way the columbia oil company through whom the producers and refiners were exporting favored such a scheme it was certain many producers would go into it but on all sides there was much skepticism about the standard allowing a line to go through mr emery's first idea was a line from bradford to williamsport on the reading road he consulted the railroad officials they would be glad of the freight they told him and a preliminary contract was drawn up the contract was never completed mr emery returned to find out why if we give you this contract the reading officials told mr emery we shall disturb our relations with the standard oil trust we cannot do it turning from the reading he projected a new route a pipeline from bradford to the new york ontario and western railway near hancock new york thence by rail to the hudson river and from there by water to new york harbor the new york ontario and western officials welcomed the proposal it gave them a new and valuable freight but the pipes must cross the erie road near both its terminals mr emery saw the president of the road yes the president told him we are disposed to assist all progress go ahead thus encouraged he sent his men into the field to get the right-of-way they had made a good beginning before the project was known but as soon as it was rumored there appeared promptly on the route surveyed a number of men known to be standard employees they too wanted a right-of-way the same as mr emery wanted they bought strips of land across his route they bought up mortgages on farms where rights had already been acquired, and, mortgage in hand, compelled farmers to give them rights. It was an incessant harassing by men who never used the rights acquired, who did not want them save to hinder the independent project. This sort of hindrance by the standard was certain, whatever route was taken, and Mr. Emery went ahead undismayed, and in September 1892 organized his company, the United States Pipeline Company, with a capital of six hundred thousand dollars among the incorporators were representatives of the independents interest both in new york and in the oil regions and much of the stock was soon placed in the hands of the men who were interested in the independent concerns described above it looked very much as if the united states pipeline were to be laid now the strength of the standard oil trust had always been due to its control of transportation an independent pipeline especially to the seaboard was considered rightly as a much more serious menace to its power than an independent refinery the united states pipeline could not be allowed and prompt and drastic measures were taken to hinder its work there is no space here for an account of the wearisome obstructive litigation which confronted the company for the constant interference even by force which followed them for months it culminated when an attempt was made to join the pipes laid to each side of the Erie tracks near Hancock, New York, the eastern terminal of the pipeline. Mr. Emery, relying on the promise of the Erie's president to allow a crossing, sent his men to the railway to connect the pipes. Hardly had they arrived before there descended on them a force of seventy-five railroad men armed for war. These men took possession of the territory at the end of the pipes, and entrenched themselves for attack. The pipeline men camped nearby for three months, but they never attempted to join the pipes. Mr. Emery had concluded on investigation 
that the Erie officials, like the Redding, had found that it would be unwise to disturb their relations with the Standard, and while his men were keeping attention fixed on that point he was executing a flank movement, securing a right-of-way from a point seventy miles back to Wilkesbury on the Jersey Central. This new movement was executed with such celerity that by June 1893 the United States pipeline had a crude line 180 miles long connecting the Bradford oil fields with a friendly railway, and a refined line 250 miles long connecting the independent refiners of Oil City, Titusville, Warren, and Bradford with the same railway. With the completion of the refined line a question of vital importance was to be settled. Could refined oil be pumped that distance without deteriorating? The Standard had insisted loudly that it could not. When the day came to make the experiment, an anxious set of men gathered at the Wilkes-Barre terminal. They feared particularly that the oil would lose color, but to their amazement not only was the color kept, but it was found on experiment that the fire test was actually raised by the extra agitation the oil had undergone in the long churning through the pipes. A new advance had been made in the oil industry, the most substantial and revolutionary since the day the tidewater demonstrated that crude oil could be pumped over the mountains. This new discovery, it is well to note, was not the work of the Standard Oil Trust, but it was accomplished in the face of their ridicule and opposition by men driven to find some way to escape from their hard dealings. The success of the United States refined lines aroused the greatest enthusiasm among the independent interests. It gave them access to the seaboard, and there was immediate talk of a closer union between them. Why should the producers' and refiners' pipelines not be sold to the United States line and completed to Bradford? By the spring of 1894 the project seemed certain of realization. The new movement was serious. Let this consolidation take place, and the producers had exactly what they had set out in 1887 to build up, a complete machine for handling the oil they produced. As the undertaking grew in solidity and completeness, the war upon it grew more systemic and determined. It took two main lines, discrediting the enterprise in the eyes of stockholders so that they would sell the stock to standard buyers, the object being, of course, to get control of the companies, cutting the refined market until the refiners in the alliance should fail, or, becoming discouraged, sell. The work of discrediting the enterprise was turned over to the standard organs in the oil regions, chief among which is the Oil City Dairy. Since 1885 the editor of this interesting sheet has been a picturesque Irishman, Patrick C. Boyle by name. Mr. Boyle's position as editor and proprietor of the Derrick is due to the generosity of the Standard Oil Trust, and he has discharged his allegiance to his benefactor with a zeal which, if it has not always contributed to the enlightenment of the oil regions, has materially to its gaiety. Mr. Boyle now turned all his extraordinary power of vituperation on three of the independents whose activity was particularly offensive to him, Mr. Emery, Mr. Wood, and Mr. Lee, and he went so far that each of the three gentlemen finally sued him for libel. They all got judgments. In Mr. Emery's case, Mr. Boyle, after signing a bond of $5,000 to keep the peace, which bond he was obliged later to pay with half as much more in cost, published the following retraction to the public 
For many years past there have appeared in the editorial and news columns of the Oil City Derrick various articles reflecting on the business, social, and political character and integrity of Lewis Emery, Jr. P. C. Boyle, the editor of the Derrick, was indicted and convicted for the publication of certain of such articles, and civil suit for damages was instituted by Mr. Emery against P. C. Boyle for damages for such publications. The litigation has now been adjusted, and Mr. Boyle voluntarily retracts in toto all matters and things which he has said derogatory to the character standing or responsibility of Lewis Emery, Jr., published by him or under his direction in the past. Mr. Boyle is fully satisfied that such articles have been published under a misapprehension of the facts, and is satisfied that Mr. Emery has been wronged and should be vindicated, and this retraction is freely made as such. Many of the articles have been republished in various papers in this country and Europe, and it is the desire of Mr. Boyle that this retraction shall be as freely and fully printed and published as were the original articles, reflecting on Mr. Emery. Signed, P. C. Boyle. It is a satisfaction to the writer to be able to help gratify Mr. Boyle's laudable desire to have this document well circulated. Although the greater part of the oil regions never took Mr. Boyle himself seriously, the conviction that his attacks were inspired, that this was the standard's way of saying to the producers that their enterprise would not be allowed to live, gave a sinister look to what he said. More damaging still was the quiet confidence with which the solid men of the standard smiled at the independent effort. What were their puny hundreds compared to the millions of the trust? What was a band of scattered oil shriekers against the cold-blooded deliberation of Mr. Rockefeller's solid failings? The oil men were conscious enough of the inadequacy of their capital and their organization, but they hung on, many of them because their blood was up, and they preferred spending their last cent to yielding. Others, on the principle which Mr. Phillips confesses, held him, that God sometimes chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, or that one might chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight. The efforts which the Standard made to discredit the independent companies and their leaders were accompanied by a persistent though quiet attempt of Standard agents to buy in all the stock of the Producers' Oil Company and the United States pipelines which timid, indifferent, or financially embarrassed stockholders could be induced to give up. The movement began to be rumored and caused no little uneasiness in independent circles. How much would the Standard get? What would they do with it? They were soon to find out. Before the use to be made of the stock developed, however, the Standard turned against the independents the most powerful and cruel weapon it wields, its control of the markets. The refiners were to be driven from the combination. The extent to which cutting was carried on for two years, beginning with the fall of 1893, is clear from a comparison of prices. In January of 1893, crude oil was selling at 53.5 cents a barrel and refined oil for export at 5.33 cents a gallon. Throughout the year the price of crude advanced until in December it was 78.38 cents. Refined, on the contrary, fell, and it was actually 18 points lower in December than it had been 12 months before. Throughout 1894 the Standard kept refined oil down. The average price of the year was 5.19 cents a gallon in the face of the average crude market at 83 and three-quarter cents, lower in January 1893 with crude at 53 and a half cents a barrel. 
This much for the New York end of the export business. In Germany, where the export oil of the independents all went, it being handled there by one dealer, Herr Poth, whose depot was Mannheim on the Rhine, prices were cut at every point which the independent oil reached. It was a matter of life or death to keep the foreign market they had developed, and for twenty months the independent refiners met the demand of their export agents and foreign dealers for lower prices with cut cargoes. For twenty months they lost money on every barrel they sold. Oil was sold by the Titusville refiners as low as 1.98 cents a gallon. The Lewis Emery Works at Bradford sold one cargo at 1.07 cents net, and many at or below two cents. Had it not been for the union with pipelines, such prices would have been impossible. But all through the struggle in the market the United States pipeline and the producers and refiners' lines carried oil at cost or below. The pipelines were heavily in debt to the Reading Iron Works, but that company stood by them valiantly, extending their notes until the struggle was over and the pipelines able to meet them. Such a situation could not go on forever, evidently. It had come apparently to be a question of how long the refiner had money to lose, and as month after month the independents saw their bank accounts diminishing, and no relief in sight, the courage of a few began to ooze. Finally, late in 1894, a committee of the Western refiners consisting of John Ferdick of Titusville, H. P. Burwald of Titusville, and S. W. Ramage of Oil City, went to New York to consult the Standard. Is there no hope of a better market? Is there any chance for us? None whatever, they were told, except to sell. We will buy the refineries and the stock of the independent concerns, but that is all we can do. The committee came home to report. The situation was hopeless, they said, and as for them, they should sell. As they represented three of the largest concerns in the Union, and all carried stock in the Allied enterprises, their withdrawal seemed at the moment a death blow. It was a glum and beaten body of men which listened to the report, surrender written in every line of their faces. Now Mr. Lee and Mr. Wood, two active men of the Producers' Oil Company, had been invited to the meeting of the refiners. They realized fully that if the refiners pulled out of the Union now, the independent effort would in all probability go to pieces, and before a vote to sell could be taken, Mr. Lee was on his feet. In an impassioned speech he pleaded for one more effort. He pointed out the fact that the abnormal condition of the oil market could not remain, that crude oil was steadily rising, and that no monopoly could permanently hold down a manufactured product in the face of the rising raw product. The Standard had done this for nearly two years, but it was contrary to the laws of nature that they could do it for two years more. He told them that already conditions were better in Germany, that Mr. Emery had recently gone with Herr Poe, their foreign buyer, to several members of the German government, and presented to them the discrimination in prices of oil practiced in the empire, oil from one and a half to three cents higher on the Elbe than on the Rhine, at points where freights were the same. He told the refiners of the interest that had been taken by the government in their case, and how they said, Go home, gentlemen, and this shall stop, and that it had stopped. If criminal underselling can be checked in Germany, Mr. Lee argued, we can keep our market. He reminded the refiners that it was not merely a business they were establishing. It was a cause they were defending, 
the right of men to work in their own way without unlawful interference. The honor not only of themselves but of the oil regions was at stake. They were struggling for great principles. They were demonstrating that pluck, patience, and energy and brains can conquer any combination that ability and unscrupulousness can devise. Do not give in, pleaded Mr. Lee. Hold on, and we will go to the producers, lay your plight before them, and raise money to keep up the fight. Aroused by his plea, all of the refiners, except Messrs. Fertig, Burwald, and Ramage, who had seen the standard, decided to make another effort if the producers would help them out. In the next few days, the leading men of the Independent Alliance worked with fury to call the oil regions into a mass meeting. They traveled from assembly to assembly, exhorting to action. They circulated dodgers announcing the gathering, and finally in January 1895 ran special trains to Butler, the rallying place. There was no lack of enthusiasm and blunt talk at the Butler mass meeting. All the bitterness and determination of the region poured forth against the standard, and when a resolution was offered by David Kirk, one of the most active and forceful of the independents, to raise money to form a new company to be called the Pure Oil Company, its immediate object being to take care of the refiners in the tight place where they were, it went through with a whoop, and in a few moments $75,000 had been subscribed. A few days later this sum was raised to $200,000. The objects of the company, as set forth in its prospectus, issued at this time were to maintain and uphold the inherent right to do business, the right to transport and market the producer's own product, and his right to the just reward of his labor and capital invested. Another clause of the prospectus is interesting. To prevent any interference of that monopoly which has obtained control of the oil business, the voting power of one-half of the stock of the Pure Oil Company is placed by the owners in the hands of five champions of this right of independence, who are bound by the terms of a permanent trust bond to vote only for such men and measures as shall forever make this company independent, so that no sales of interest will carry with them any power to jeopardize the policy or existence of the company or the investments of its remaining members. This is the end of Chapter 15, Part 1, recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.